Um, so good morning. Um, so as you know, we've, we've been in this series uh, for four weeks now. Um, and it's good to continue to hear stories from different people um, and the sharing and to continue what it means to value being a believer of Jesus Christ in this place. Uh, so far, we've talked about intimacy with God, authentic relationships, and living a transformed life. Um, it was, we've also heard stories endeavoring to strengthen our hearts and our minds around who we are, connecting with one another, as well as connecting with God, growing together with growing with God, and also serving each other while serving God. Um, and I think that the church is under a great challenge um, in the world that we live in today. Um, the church is in a very post-Christian world uh, that we live, facing an accusation of relevancy, or maybe it's an accusation of irrelevancy, that we don't stand strong anymore as a church, uh, that we don't have a voice into our community that's worth listening to anymore, uh, that the people who claim to follow Jesus Christ can be very misguided in those allegiances and those assertions as well. Uh, this is a great challenge um, that we face, especially in 2021. But what we want to do and what we need to do is to ensure that we are buying back into the values of who we are and what we stand for in this place as well as in the world. That we stand and we say that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of my life. But if Jesus is the one that I seek to serve and follow, what does that mean? What is the difference uh, that that makes in my life? I know personally what difference it makes in the living of my life, but what does it mean for us as a collective? How does that shape itself? So I hope that this morning... And for some of the things that we look into, that we would have a sense of we're not just following Jesus ourselves, uh, but together we have something very, very important uh, as the people of God in this place. You see, connecting to God is connecting to each other, and growing in a relationship with God is growing alongside one another. We cannot forget the wonderful beauty of what it is to be together in the Lord's name. And I know that now that we're starting to gather back in person, that's all the more evident of how important it is to be together. I know that I need you and I believe in my heart of hearts that you need me too. Um, I know that we can look around and see each other, whether it's on a Sunday or any other day. And we can't say that I don't need each other. We do need everybody here in this place. And I can say that when New City is functioning as the body, we are in effect the closest thing to Jesus Christ that the watching world will see. When we are rejoicing, when we are serving, when we are speaking, when we are connecting, when we are growing, the world will not be able to cope with that. And they will want to understand why it is that you give up part of your Sunday. Why it is that you give up part of your week. Why it is that you have surrendered your life in the fashion that you have. To do what you do 
and in the manner of which you do it. Questions will be asked, and that goes to the heart of our identity, who we are. So before we get started, let me open in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here together this morning. I pray that you will open our hearts and you will open our minds. Lead us in this time of thinking about your word as we set our hearts before you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So a lot of attention has been given in scripture to the idea of belonging. Not just to God, but belonging to each other as well. We haven't just haphazardly been thrown together according to the truth of the word of God. And our life is not the result of some random set of variables. God is determined not only for us to be in a relationship with him, but to be in a relationship with each other. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple of passages. We're going to spend some time thinking through Psalm 139, which we did touch on a couple of weeks ago. But this time, we want to look at it in the context of Ephesians 4, which Chris read for us. Because the individuality of Psalm 139 in relationship with God is then backed up by being together in Ephesians 4, which we need to understand and appreciate. Uh, this last week, I finished a book by, uh, written by a, a man named Bob Buford, if anybody's heard of him before. Um, he's written many books, um, and the book I read was entitled Half Time. Uh, it's not a sports book, but it does have some sports connotations to it. But it's a book about finding significance in life, um, especially in the second half of your life. Um, after you have the ability to stop, regroup, think about what you did in your first half of your life and what that means for the second half of your life and how you can make changes. Um, Buford was a businessman. He was a media, um, kind of, he ran a cable television news company. Um, and he spent the first half of his life searching for success in a business world and what that meant for him, for his family, and for a lot of different things. And while he was pushing, searching, trying to find that success, what he came to realize that his search for success was actually an inner craving for significance. What is my life really all about? Who am I? But more particularly, why am I who I am? He had a metaphor about what's in the box. If you were to draw a square on a piece of paper, what is the most important thing that you can put in that box? What are you living for? And isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? Searching for significance with the life that we're living. We can often get dejected over some things. We can gravitate towards another thing. And we try to clamor and climb to do the very best that we can because we want significance out of all that is happening. And this is what David was in the midst of when he wrote Psalm 139. Who am I? What am I doing here? What should I be doing with my life? These are the sorts of questions that come to the forefront as David writes Psalm 139. Serious questions that for us, I believe that God wants us to appreciate as well. Because it does matter what we discover because it matters. 
And it does go to the heart of our personal identity and our eternal destiny. We need to wrestle with some of these things and not just float through life, thinking that it will take care of itself. How we answer these types of questions determines how much about how we live and how we live our lives. Now, Psalm 139 is is a very famous psalm. I'm sure it's very popular and people can recount it without having to to look at the words. Um, And when we put the ideas of this psalm together, we soon discover that soon discover something very quickly about God and something about ourselves in relationship with God. And this truth is so much bigger that, than you or I could ever understand. I don't know how you wrestle with the concept of there being a God in this universe who as mighty as he is and as vast as he is still wants to know each of us individually. And I know at a lot of times I I can feel that this is something that when I finally feel like I figured it out, again, I realize that I don't. And it goes back to the topic of last week with the antennas. Finally, when I feel like I've got that signal, it's fuzzy again. The more I learn about God, the more I realize I have still so much yet to learn. And the closer I get to God, the farther I have to go in understanding him and what it means to live with him. I can understand how God can create the vastness of the universe and yet still care to know the numbers of hairs on my head. And again, that's something that's slowly starting to drop in numbers, uh, as I've noticed over the last couple of years. Um, So instead of my head, what I did last night is I circled a piece of my finger Um, And I tried to count how many hairs are on my finger. I got to 22, and then I'm like, oh, man, I think I counted that one. Let me try again. And I couldn't couldn't get past 22. And it was actually very difficult, considering that I have a lot more hairs on my arms and my head than just my finger. I can understand that this God is my God, and yet somehow I'm allowed to understand that this God is, who is greater than my mind can possibly fathom, comes to me, desiring a relationship with me. And that's just an amazing thought. When we think of the personal nature of all that David is writing, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God is very personal to David. And that's what God is wanting us to see, the personal side of what it is. That in this relationship, perhaps at times can feel too personal, there is nothing hidden from the knowledge of God. No justifications, no fabrications. Nothing is hidden. But there will always be those who think that because they have hidden something from others, they can always hide it away from God. If others don't see it, well, then God isn't seeing it either. But nothing could be farther from the truth. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 29:15. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? There are so many people that live like this. I can just tuck it away. I can hide it away. 
No one's going to know. Even God himself won't know. But David goes on to say, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it. Not only everything he did, but everything he thought was known by God. It couldn't be tucked away. It couldn't be isolated. It couldn't be set aside. God is personal and familiar because he created us. And even more, he did it so beautifully and so completely. Dr. John Medina is a very well-noted genetic engineer. He's written many books um, and many devotionals touching on the intricacies of the human body. He says that the average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons of blood a day. So that's over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That's enough to fill 13 super tankers. And if you don't know what a super tanker is, that's the red bar there. That's actually an oil ship standing on its side. So to give you perspective in terms of some of the major buildings in the world, your body will pump enough to fill that Noc Nevis 13 times in your lifetime. The human heart never sleeps. It beats 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. So again, you just hope that it keeps going. The lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries. And the process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated that it's far easier to shoot a person out of a cannon and have them carve the Lord's Prayer on a pinhead as they fly past. So that's 65 words in the Lord's Prayer, 254 letters, and 14 punctuation marks, all carefully engraved on a pinhead, which is 47 one-thousandths of an inch in diameter. So to give you context again, there was a man named Charles H. Baker of Spokane, Washington. He was a highly technical engraver in the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, so he's pretty well qualified. It took Mr. Baker three years and six months to complete the engraving, and over 3,000 pins were attempted in creating this masterpiece. The work was done under a microscope as you could not see the end of the tool with the naked eye. In order to complete his work, Mr. Baker moved out of the country, sorry, into the country to avoid noise. He wouldn't even attempt working on the pin when the wind was blowing. He strapped his hands to an iron bar to keep them from shaking to avoid the rhythm of his own pulse. This work left Mr. Baker under a constant strain of working on such a tiny surface for three years that it eventually turned him blind and he was put into an insane asylum. So again, context is everything. <laughs> DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. A six-foot strand of DNA is folded into a nucleus. A nucleus is six microns, one millionth of a meter long. 
That's like putting 30 miles of fishing line inside of a cherry pit. And it isn't just stuffed in there. It's folded in in a particular order in a neat way. If you fold it one way, it becomes skin cells. If you fold it another way, it becomes liver cells. To write out all the information from just one cell, it would take over 300 volumes, with each volume 500 pages long. The human body contains enough DNA that if it was stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. The body uses, enough, uses energy efficiently that if the average adult rides a bike for one hour, at 10 miles an hour, it uses the same amount of energy contained in only three ounces of a carbohydrate. If a car were this efficient with gasoline, we would get over 900 miles to the gallon. Your body is remarkable. So I ask you a simple question. When's the last time you thanked God for your body? David says, for you created my inmost being. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes we think that we might be an accident, we might be an experiment. We think that we're just a blob that's drawn breath and it's grown legs and we have life. But God sees it so much differently. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Beautiful words, right? But what does that actually mean, fearfully and wonderfully? We hear it all the time. Again, you probably have recounted this verse so many times, but what does it actually mean? God thinks I'm wonderful and I guess fearful at the same time? Maybe, thanks God. But not quite. David says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. But what does it mean, David? So first, we need to understand context. So many scholars believe that David wrote this psalm while he was a young boy uh, shepherding um, in the wilderness. And here he was on the side of a hill praising God because he was overwhelmed by the majesty of God. A God who created him in such an intricate and unique way. He didn't know all the facts that I was just spurting out to you. But again, he was overwhelmed with that thought. David is in complete awe of his amazing God. However, to say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made while praising God, isn't that kind of an odd thing to say? The word wonderfully is the Hebrew word for pala, which means to be separate, distinguished, or unique. So it means that God made you, made me to be special. There is no one like you. You are the only you that God has ever created. God made you to be special, distinguished, and unique. But that's that's the part of the verse that we can probably put together, right? Where it can get tricky, it doesn't just say wonderful. It says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The word fearfully in Hebrew is the word yar which is the same word the Bible uses when referring to having a fear of the Lord. 
And when the Bible speaks of having a fear of the Lord, it means that it doesn't mean that we are to be terrified of God. Instead, what fear of the Lord is referring to, we have to have respect and reverence of God. We follow God and obey God because we respect His ways. We respect who He is. We stand in awe of how great and mighty God is, and we come to Him in praise because He is worthy of our praise. Praising God because God is worthy of our praise is exactly what David is doing in Psalm 139, verse 14. David is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I praise you because you made me in a fearful and wonderful way. And David knows this full well. He knows that he is only great because of the greatness of God that makes him great. In the same way, you and I are only wonderful because God's wonderfulness makes us wonderful. You see, it was God that created our inmost being and it was God that knit us together in our mother's womb. So Lord, I praise you because how amazing you made me. David is praising God because of how amazing God made him to be. Who we are. We are all masterpieces. We are all unique. We are all original in design. But as we take it a step further, it is because we are to fear God that we are fearfully made. Remember the word fearfully here means to respect, to revere, to honor, to stand in awe. So when it says you are fearfully made, what it means is when God made you, he made you full of respect. He made you full of reverence. He made you full of honor and full of awe. It is because God is worthy of our respect that we are respectfully made. It is because God is worthy of reverence that we are made in reverence. It is because God is worthy of honor that we are made in honor. It is because we stand in awe of God that we are an awe-inspiring creation. Everything that we are first comes from the source of everything that He is. We are made in the image of God. And God doesn't make mistakes. Psalm 18.30 says, As for God, His ways are perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. God's way is perfect and His word is flawless. So when God's word says that He created your inmost being, that He means God designed you exactly the way that He wanted you to be. Psalm 139 verse 13 you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us so long ago. When you look at yourself and everything that makes you, your giftings, your anointings, your talents, you should stand in awe of what God created you to be. 
So again, I ask you, when's the last time you thanked God for you? To be fearfully and wonderfully made is not just a feel-good Bible verse. There is real power and authority that comes with being fearfully and wonderfully made. Romans 8:11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And what a powerful message this is for a generation growing in the shadow of body shaming, social pressures, peer influence, body dissatisfaction, personality, and social dissatisfaction. But then I had the thought, it isn't just the youth and the children that are going through this, it's all of us. We all face these daily. I face this daily. We are all bombarded with this every single day. And what David is showing us through his praise is to never give in to the lie that you are anything less than the most wonderful reflection of God who is worthy of honor and praise. Remember, you are made in the image and likeness of God. So just as David did give God all the glory and praise because of how fearfully and wonderfully has made you. But not, he not only knows our bodies, though, he knows the secret places of our minds. And it's an awesome thought. It also can be a scary thought to realize that nothing I do or think is ever hidden from God. We can't be secretive about a little bit of it here and open up the rest of it to God. He is there desiring the best for us. And sometimes the thought of God's knowledge of every hidden thing about me can become overwhelming. I know for myself that there's times where you just want to shut the door and lock him out and just be left to yourself. But finally, when you think you're getting away and doing that, again, you turn yourself and God's waiting on the other side of the door for you. So when David wrote this psalm, it was, when David wrote this psalm, it was commonly assumed that there were many gods. And each one was confined to a specific locality. There was the God of the hills. There was the God of the plains. There was the God of the rains. There was the God of the harvest. It was not thought possible that Jehovah Yahweh, which is the God of Israel, could possibly exist in other places because that isn't how God's worked. But David knew that no matter where he went, he could not get away. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You remember the story of Jonah? God got a little bit too close for comfort for Jonah. He's just like us. Jonah thought that he would just simply run away from it all because life was getting too hard. Jonah wanted God's enemies dead, but God wanted a salvation outcome. Jonah didn't like that. For him, his God was the God of the Hebrews, not the God of the other nations. He was his God, and Jonah wanted to keep it that way. But God surprised Jonah, and he met him on the other side of the sea. And he used him to preach to the people that Jonah felt were too far away from God's grace or care. Friends, for us, God is always personal and present. He is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with you. God is with us. 
He is with you wherever you find yourself. Whether you choose to run and you're stuck in despair in the belly of a great fish, whether you're being acted upon and you're feeling helpless, sold by your brothers into a life of slavery, whether you've turned your back on Jesus and feeling guilt as the rooster is crowing, or whether you find yourself just floating along as a global pandemic rages, know that he is with me. He will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop chasing you. He is relentless, even in your dark places that you try to hide. And what both David and Jonah discover is that God is gracious and he is merciful. He searches for us because he desires a relationship with us. And at times, that might be the last thing that we want. But he lovingly reminds us and keeps drawing us in. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, that would be enough. That would be enough for us to know. If that's all there was, if there was nothing else to know, to know that I am loved by God, to know that I can be in a relationship with God, to know that He is present with me and chases after me, relentlessly seeking to draw me to Himself, If that's all there was, that should be enough, shouldn't it? But this is why we need the balance of God's Word. Because God's unique design is not just wrapped up in me individually. God's unique design is seen in the corporate of His body. The individuality of each of us here together in this place. The extrapolation of what we think we know compared to what truly is, is enormous. And yet God has chosen that he would take the individuality of each one of us and place us here together. Place us here in this place together. So friends, for us, God is always personal and present. And as we look at Ephesians 4, we start to pick up on that. And Paul's writings, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, the way that Paul writes his letters, he gives a little bit of teaching, and then he makes the application very accessible for us. So chapter 4 begins with the application of his teaching. He says, here's some stuff that you need to believe, and now this is what you do with it. So verse 1 As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So here's the calling. There's the drawing to our Savior, that Jesus, that we need to take on board. And then as we move into verse 2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So here we're moving into the corporate setting. Then verse 3 to 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this is my favorite part. Who is over all and through all 
and in all. The life we have the life we have is not set aside as the Psalm 139 life only. Because Ephesians 4 and many other parts of the scripture draw us in together. That we live this life alongside one another. That we are meant to do it in a particular way that honors this calling. We value that. We value our differences. We value the fact that God has placed us alongside each other. We value the connectedness. We value living a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So friends, God has created us so uniquely and so special. But none of us have been called to be solo Christians. There is no such thing in God's equation. He never intended that we would live completely separate from each other. Yes, our relationship with Him is special and it is important and it sets us apart, but it sets us apart to be a connection with one another. Let's not negate what that asks of us. So as Paul moves into chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, he says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, and we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ connected, growing together. This push onto maturity comes because we're expressing this life together in this place. One of the values we have here is that we're living for Jesus Christ. That I am taking personal responsibility for who I am before the Lord. But I'm asking you to watch over me just as I watch over you. That we understand and build up this maturity. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God would have us respect and honor that which he is doing through his body. Psalm 139 is the psalmist's confession that God is personal and present. And that throws up a huge challenge to our comprehension of God. How is it that I can know this God and have a relationship with Him? But all we can do is respond in faith and exclaim with David that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. So we're on a journey of life in discovering this. And each and every day, In that relationship, we are growing in it and we are learning that connection. But if our understanding of the wonders of the grace of God is challenging, it's then the words of Ephesians 4 that reminds us how practical that grace can be because God's design is unique in us and in His church. He has created us for relationship with Him And he has placed us together to make a difference. His church and his people are precious because we are connected and we are growing. And we value all that he is doing. So let's not forsake gathering together 
Let us not deny the importance of taking responsibility in life before Jesus, but let's also look around and seek to understand who each other is and how we work together and how God has blended us so that we can not only trust in Him, but that we can trust each other and grow in all that God is doing. So I want to finish with a quote from George Bernard Shaw, one of my favorite authors. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do it, do, uh, to do for it what I can. I want to be thoroughly used up. For the harder I work, the more I live. And I rejoice in this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done in our life and you continue to do. We thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you understand what you're doing and the manner in which you are doing it. Thank you for calling us and drawing us to yourself. Thank you for chasing us and never giving up on us. Thank you for this life that we live. But apart from all of that and in the midst of all of that, thank you that we are alongside one another. That your name is to be honored. That your name is to be lifted high. Father, we seek to serve you as we care for each other. Amen.